0: Welcome to Life Extension. Life Extension is my series where I interview the scientists and pioneers of longevity. We're investigating the new frontiers of longevity for people and planet. This episode, we're talking to Reason, a scientist and an entrepreneur named Reason. That's his name. When you listen to the episode, you'll see me poking around to try to find out more about his personal story. But his professional and scientific story, well, he's known in the longevity community for publishing the Fight Aging newsletter and blog, where he seems to read everything, even partially related to the topic, and write his point of view and share it with everyone. And he's the founder of a company called Repair Biotechnologies, which we'll get into. We're going to talk about how Reason sees the landscape, about his company in particular, how far they've come. I learned so much talking to, to Reason, and uh, I think you guys will, too. Thank you very much, Reason, for uh, being on this longevity series of In the Know. I know we just like reached out to you cold and you were just like, yeah, sure, I'm up for it. So it's very kind of you to make a bit of time, because I think that I may have stumbled upon the like universal nexus for information about fighting aging and longevity. Without really thinking about it too much, I thought I was speaking to somebody who's the CEO of a company that does some stuff in this area, and then I realized, oh my God, for the last 20 years, you've been reading, annotating, and then publishing your commentaries on everything important on the topic of aging, and probably to a subscriber group that includes everyone who matters in the field. Am I far off in that judgment?
1: I think that's possibly overly flattering. Certainly, back in the day, when there were far fewer people in the field, was everybody was subscribed at some point. But uh, yeah, I've spent a lot of time looking at the field and thinking about the field, and um, I have strong biases towards certain approaches, and those have always been reflected in my writing. And the idea of the early stages was, hey, let's provide a dial tone of just people talking about this. For those people who are new and want to see that there is something going on and want to know where to go. And that, of course, has become somewhat less necessary over time and it drifted into let's look more at the science. And as it became less of a question of persuading people that it was possible to deal with aging at all and became more of a question of wait, you guys are doing the wrong things. Let's go do something better and that's more likely to produce effects. And we're still in the era of arguing over what the best approach is and impolitely telling people who are taking the path that is easy to to reward their investors that maybe they should have been doing something that's actually going to move the needle on longevity instead. There's definitely a right way to go about this and a wrong way to go about this. And unfortunately, if we don't fix that, it's going to take 20 years and half of the investment in this marketplace wasted to figure that out. Okay. So I get the sense that you have some
0: opinions on uh, how all this should go down. Am I right? But so let me, (laughs) let me pursue those opinions. However, maybe we can just start like way back. I was trying to like demystify you or figure out what the story is. I mean, you're like a Linnaeus kind of like self-named autodidact person. I mean, it's not so often that I meet a guy that renamed themselves Reason and dropped any other kind of decoration give me like the origin story on uh,
1: the mastermind ah well the origin story on this is one day i woke up and thought you know it would be really terrible if i died and everything was easy after that it became very logical to go look at the issue of aging and see that it was plausible that we could do something about it in the time i have left and after that point it was a question of okay why isn't everybody running around doing these things. In that sense, I came at this a little like Aubrey de Grey, different direction, but the same realization of, oh, look, we could, we could actually address aging and save countless lives and improve the human race and improve the quality of life for everybody. I bet a lot of people are working on this, except they're not. and That's ridiculous, given that there are very, very obvious paths forward. So that it became a question of, okay, am I going to sit here and let this continue? Or should I do something about this? Unfortunately, I can't leave things alone. I started to do something about this. And it took a little time to figure out that, okay, writing was a useful thing to do. And after that, it took another 15 years to get to the point of maybe there are things to invest in here. And after that, uh, another few years to get to the point of let's start a company and, um, and actually do some of the things that are not getting done. But it's an ongoing process. You know, there'll still 20 years from now, there'll be people like me saying, wait, not enough people are doing things about this. Let's do some more because it's a really massive field and there's, there's an awful lot that has to be done. Um, but we're still in that middle awkward stage where I think it's a given that everybody who matters knows that aging can be addressed and should be addressed. The people that out there in the world who don't really matter, sorry to say, when it comes to decisions on funding for research, they will come around in the next decade or two when the first treatments are out there. And suddenly it's the case that your doctor is telling you that, oh, look, there's this this treatment you should take that removes senescent cells from your body. And if you don't do this, that would be kind of silly. Why would you just crumble when you could take a hundred or $200 treatment that, um, that makes you not crumble in the case of you know, osteoarthritis or heart disease or raised risk of everything following cancer treatment and so on and so forth. So things will go further. So this is sort of a story that spans over a part of the exponential curve in this. And if you look for the 20 years prior to my involvement, there are other people who have similar stories and were present for the 20 years of struggle that didn't get them very far because they were still in the very, very early stages where nobody could raise money for this. The technology wasn't good enough to bypass the problems of funding. You needed an enormous amount of money to make any headway on anything. And there was no hope for them to get anywhere. But nonetheless, they struggled and they formed communities. And some of those communities continue now. And some of that informed people in my generation, if you like, of um, advocacy. And I'm fortunate enough, and those of us in my peer group are fortunate enough, that at this point in time, we see something of a takeoff. But If you go 20 years ahead of us, everything we've done still looks like a flat line. The flat part of the
0: curve, yeah. You know, but Reason, I was pulling on a thread, so that was terrific, I think, synthesis of probably this 20-year block we're in, looking forward and behind as well. I was pulling on a thread. There wasn't a lot of personal disclosure in your superhero origin story. You're supposed to be growing up in Astoria, Queens, watching your um, grandfather try to rescue you from uh, a wrestling match or something, and that's what gets it all going. And when do I find that part out?
1: No, that's really not the way it works, unfortunately. The the world is not a story. From my perspective, I'm just another guy doing the obvious thing. It was straightforward and obvious that this should be done, and straightforward and obvious that this was a great hobby for me to undertake. And later, the hobby turned into my life's work, because it proved to be useful. Somebody needed to do it. There's no sort of reason why I came to this place of the realization that is very, very obvious that everybody else in the world should have had? Why did 99% of everybody look at the fact that all humans suffer and die horribly and say, oh, well, nothing to be done, and not realize that actually there is a lot that could be done? And the research community has shown since the 1950s a whole bunch of things we could be doing. And then if you look closer at that, you see that there was a weird sort of set of circumstances from the 1970s on in which a bunch of people who had this realization at that time went off and formed the anti-aging industry and were very vocal about it. And the research community just recoiled in horror and immediately shut down everything they could possibly be doing in the matter of aging and intervention. So you had this sort of 30-year period in which a bunch of people doing varyingly fraud and earnest but mistaken work To try to address aging completely destroyed any progress in research that might have been made over that same period of time so by the time people were making worms live a lot longer in the 90s by learning from calorie restriction and making genetic edits based on that it was a real uphill battle to convince the establishment of the research community that you should stop sticking your head in the sand and accept that there are things that could and should be done based on the evidence that have been accumulated uh, since you know 50 years past. Okay okay that, you've was, that was you've the last me. 20 years.
0: You've convinced me. I mean we're here of course talking about the matter at hand and this uh this past that led us to this moment. I think it is it is very true that it has been fraught I guess with uh, all kinds of obstructionism and illusory moral and ethical qualms and whatever it is it might be right. But I wanted to um explore with you and I think the opportunity we have in talking with you is to Get into it, find out what matters and how is it moving. And I think there are two different threads that I want to pursue and I want to use our time well for this. One is that we're speaking to the CEO of Repair Biotechnologies and surely a person of your knowledge and expertise would not have chosen to work on what you're working on and the way that you're working on it if it wasn't fantastically exciting and surely we need to know more about it. So that's one thing. But the other is the lore that surrounds your newsletter, which I as you know, perhaps overstating it only slightly, anyone who matters in this field has come across and subscribes to, but the position it puts you in as an expert, as an aggregator and synthesizer of so many of the things that are false and true and exciting and boring in the field. And I wanted to explore both of those different themes. And I thought maybe a good starting point would be your newsletter, Clyde Ageing.
1: The newsletter is really a, um, a stream of consciousness taken from what is coming out of the research community. I just go look at PubMed. I go look at the you know, Eureka Alert and the other sources of press releases and say, what's happened recently? What's going on? What's actually interesting and relevant? And if you do this over time and you are the only person who's doing it, in your organization, you build up this memory, hey, I've seen this before, or wait, this, this jigsaw piece connects to this other jigsaw piece over here. Really, all I'm doing is just pointing out where the jigsaw pieces connect in every little new piece of the wall that's being built when researchers bricks in place, because every single paper, every single press release, it's just one part. It's just one new brick in a wall that's being built for that particular topic. And you have to go back and look at 20 other papers or what happened five years ago in order to better understand, you know, what is really going on here and why is it really relevant? And of course, when it's press releases rather than papers, there's a certain language that gets used that makes it sound like it's the best thing since sliced bread always ever. And it never is. But sometimes it's important. Sometimes it's interesting. And we always have to qualify when we look at things. You know, What is the effect size? What do we think the gain from this is going to be? Can we make predictions about whether this is going to be great or not great based on other things that have happened? For example, half of the field, not a terrible exaggeration, probably is half of the field, works on... You know, metabolic manipulation based on calorie restriction, improve cellular maintenance, do the things that happen when you eat less or exercise more. And we know what happens when you eat less or exercise more. And the bounds of the possible there are just not great for Mm -hmm. near all of this. And we will get a brace of marginal drugs that are a little better than aspirin in terms of addressing mortality out of these projects. And the sad thing is that that doesn't matter to the investors because the investors will scared to get out there'll be a you know an ipo or a liquidity event after people do a phase one safety trial because it's a hot industry and the investors will make a bunch of money and then the drug will fail in phase two or phase three because it's marginal it's just not going to do enough in humans well,
0: let's get into it though let's get into it in that order so you know one of the things that i think you've done usefully With your newsletters, occasionally you go back and you kind of like summarize it, synthesize it, organize it, you bag and tag some of the kind of most famous posts and things like that. And you actually just touched on, I think your number one, it's about calorie restriction. And it sounds like you don't have a very high opinion about calorie restriction. It is one of the most frequently repeated topics in the field. And I think it's a robust result. It may or may not make a robust difference
1: online. Calorie restriction itself is great because you know why it's great? Because it's free. It's great (laughs) because it's free and you get a benefit from it. Now, if you or somebody has to spend a billion dollars developing a drug that isn't as good as that, and then you have to spend a bunch of money buying that drug, it stops looking as great because that billion dollars could have been going somewhere else to something that's more ambitious and will be more useful. The unfortunate thing that evolution has done to us, okay, the, the thing that evolution has done to us here, it has gifted us with a range of species where this short-lived species, the ones that you use in the lab, are far more plastic in their lifespan to environmental details. So a calorie restriction and everything associated with it, such as other responses to stress, they evolved very early. So, the current theory is okay, a seasonal famine is really what these things are trying to escape. So, calorie restriction is a way for species to do better in a famine environment. And a famine, if it's seasonal, is a very large fraction of a mouse lifespan, but not a very large fraction of a human lifespan. The human doesn't have this evolutionary pressure to have a very plastic lifespan in response to the same mechanisms that exist in mice and people, and furthermore, the human probably already has most of these mechanisms turned on already in order to get to be as long-lived as a human is. You know, we have this situation where, okay, if we look at mice, they do calorie restriction, they live 40% longer. We see humans, we know they don't live 40% longer because we've had a long history of people not eating very much. Similarly, growth hormone receptor knockout. We have mice that live 60 to 70% longer if you do that with them. They're little dwarf mice. They're very small. And we have a human population of mutants um, who have Laurent syndrome in which their growth hormone metabolism is similarly sort of disabled. And we know that these people do not live 40% 40% longer or 50% longer than the rest of us, they might be a little bit more resistant to diabetes and some diseases like that, but they're not radically long-lived as a result of having these same changes that you know upregulate the, um, the stress response mechanisms and change the way in which the body manages its resources that are so influential in short-lived species such as mice and even more influential in nematode. You can make a nematode worm live 10 times longer than is normal using techniques that in humans will do next to nothing. And this is the unfortunate thing that evolution has given us, is that long-lived species are already very optimized for all these things that are easy to discover. So if you go do a, um, an unbiased screen for small molecule drugs that change lifespan, let's say worms or flies or mice, what you're gonna discover is almost entirely drugs that manipulate these, these calorie restriction-like mechanisms of stress response, and which will be useless in humans. Well, not useless if you're a VC, because you can invest in these companies and make money, but useless otherwise. So there's there's some perverse incentives going on here related to the fact that we've been gifted this unfortunate happenstance. And the the task of the field, as I see it, is to break out of this and attack the um, issues and the parts of aging that will lead to large gains. And we found one of them already, which is Senalytics, which was predicted okay. well, let's by... Let's turn to Senalytics. Let me hold you there for a sec. What we just took a
0: tour through is the comparative biology strategies on longevity. Is that roughly the point? Yes. To which you said, eh, limited gains possible. We've already captured them in the long live species by and large. Maybe there's something to learn, but let's trust evolution. The reason we live longer is because evolution found that stuff. More or less. And And perhaps implicit in that was a further point that the tools available sitting there, and evolution has it at its disposable, only produces a limited range. I mean, you know, the average human versus the longest living human, the varieties inside, you know, related species, like you don't find two different humans living two X, five X difference. You find a 20% difference, 30% difference, something like that. And so twisting the knobs won't get you the kind of gains that maybe we're most curious about.
1: Exactly. So at one and the, uh, the same time, genetics obviously completely determines lifespan between species. Mm-hmm. But within a species, gene variants are negligible. Um, it's not interest. It's not an interesting pursuit to look at that because, as you say, individual species they just don't have a particularly large variance between members in their lifespan compared to what we'd like to engineer. So, and, it, it's and what we'd like to
0: engineer is one plus 100 percent plus three. Like, what are we talking in terms of goals? Well, what we'd, know, we'd like to engineer is is 122. Yeah. The average is 80, so we've got about a 50 percent headroom there. And you know, some people will say you're you're mad if you're looking for 200 or 400 years. What are we
1: looking well, of for? Of course because some people are not very ambitious. But the the, where the paradigm in which you can talk about indefinite lifespans is the paradigm in which you can repair everything. There's the naive way of looking at that which is let's look at hydra. A hydra is basically an embryo. It's a little ball of stem cells and its structure is such that it can replace everything constantly, all the time, and like a growing embryo, it can just get rid of cells it doesn't want, no problem. So it's immortal. And they've done this experiment. They've taken thousands of hydra and very carefully you know, cared for them for years. And these things show no increase in mortality over time. They are literally immortal. You can be immortal if you're an embryo type object or a hydra, because you can pursue this strategy of, I can just regrow everything. And you can segregate off damage into cells that you get rid of. And you can act kind of like um, early life. But if you're a creature with structure, like we are, and you have a a soma and um, a central nervous system that likes to record state in long-lived cells, you're kind of stuck. You can't just throw everything away and regenerate. There has to be something new to make that work. But in principle, if you can repair the damage that causes aging, And that
0: was where you were going just now with the senolytic cells, right? So you hive off the stuff you want to get rid of, and then you get rid of it, but you've kept some base you want to preserve. But let's talk about senolytic cells. I mean, even that itself, right? I don't think you could fill a room with longevity folks and have a majority that said senolytic cells are the the strategy.
1: Yes, it's it's the, the natural unit of strategic consideration in the longevity community is one researcher, I think. It's definitely the case that it's hard to prove things quickly. In this business therefore you can be wrong for 20 years and nobody's going to be able to call you out on it but senescent cell removal is so clearly superior to everything else that's been tried in animals in mice specifically nothing else produces the profound rejuvenation that you see in mice profound and very rapid you can reverse cardiac hypertrophy, you can reverse fibrosis, you can reverse you know, any number of age-related diseases in animal models just by removing the senescent cells that are actively degrading tissue quality and function via their secretions. And because there aren't very many of them, it's okay to just go kill them. It doesn't greatly affect tissue integrity or structure, other than you're now losing this inflammatory disruptive signaling that was actually Messing up the house. As soon as you get rid of that, these mice very quickly exhibit improved function. And in humans, we haven't quite got to the stage of showing that robustly yet, most likely because the first trials didn't use suitably high dosing, but the first trials are impressive. They do. So they, take me through the basics
0: work. on this uh, reason, please, for our listeners, right? I mean, I guess folks have heard, oh, yeah, you fast and your body kind of eats itself, or there's some folks producing compounds that target sick or old cells and try to get rid of them they've probably heard cells have some kind of maximum lifespan after which they die and maybe that's the reason why aging exists at all i mean this would be some of the grab bag of ideas
1: that might be in the so yes so senescent cells so the vast majority of cells in your body have a limited lifespan this is how cancer is kept to for evolution an acceptably low level not an acceptably low level for us of course But evolution is fine with it and part of the way that works is that you have a limited supply of cells that can replicate as much as they want those are stem cells and the somatic cells of your body have a lifespan they can only replicate a handful of times before they self-destruct or become senescent and becoming senescent is an end life stage for cells that summons the immune system predisposes them to self-destruction and they should be cleared quickly and that happens you know, all the time when you're young, your tissues are turning over, you're getting senescent cells created all the time, but they, they self-destruct or they're annihilated by the immune system. Senescent cells also serve a purpose in reducing cancer because cells with DNA damage become senescent and they encourage some of the other nearby cells to become senescent and this suppresses early cancers. You get to age 60, you probably had 40 cancers in your life that you never noticed because they got destroyed early, because the senescence model is a part of the cancer um, surveillance system that helps keep it away. If you get injured, senescent cells show up in your injury and help coordinate wound healing, and then they get removed unless you're old, in which case all of this starts to go downhill. Your immune system starts to fail at clearing these cells, and the cells themselves stop wanting to die quite so readily. So you get this accumulation of senescent cells, and their signaling is very helpful in the short term if they're only there for a little while. It summons the immune system to clear up damage. It um, helps coordinate wound healing. But if it's going for the long term, it is highly disruptive to tissue structure and tissue function. And more senescent cells at the high level, they mess up every organ. They're involved in every age-related disease. They cause chronic inflammation, and chronic inflammation is one of the pillars of aging that causes everything to go wrong, because the immune system is so central to everything in your body, not just defense against pathogens, but also maintenance of tissue, function of all sorts of things, including the brain. So when you have these senescent cells just gunking up the house, you're worse off. And if you get rid of them, you're immediately better off, very rapidly, if you're a mouse. And if you're a human, there's every reason to think that it'll work the same way. They're currently conducting a trial for Alzheimer's disease because it's very evident that senescent supporting cells in the brain are causing neuroinflammation and disruption of function that leads to the symptoms of Alzheimer's disease based on work in mouse models. And you know, five years from now, it may well be the case that the first senolytic drugs, the very low-cost ones, will turn out to be the best Alzheimer's treatment of the next 20 years. And similarly, for many other age-related conditions, as the trials happen, So it's a very promising line of work. And of course, the self-experimentation community is all over this because the first senolytic drugs that work really well in mice are actually nearly off patent, a cheap chemotherapeutic and a cheap flavonoid. So you can go get them easily and use them easily. And the self-experimenters out there are doing this. And if you're responsible and able to do that sort of thing, then why not? But the rest of us should probably wait for uh, the medical community to finish their clinical trials and feel comfortable about that. That, of course, will take another few years at least. They've been at it for five years so far.
0: I want to pause for a minute here and talk to you about Life Extension Ventures. It's the reason I'm doing this series for In The Know. Life Extension Ventures is a venture fund dedicated to working towards the longevity of people and planet. The future of humanity depends on our planet surviving and its potential can really only be unlocked if we focus on some of the technologies, some of the breakthrough science that's making it possible for us to live longer and better lives. Life Extension Ventures is a venture fund focused on supporting visionary founders that are working towards longevity of people and planet. It's the future of humanity that they're working on and we want to back them. I spent a lot of time as a science person, as an academic, as a student, and then I spent even more time becoming a company builder and venture investor. And with Life Extension Ventures, I'm bringing both of those things together with my partner, Inyaki Behringer. It's got a similar story. And we're out there finding folks who want to build companies that can really make a difference for human life. We'll need this planet if we want to survive, and we'll need to focus on these breakthrough technologies if we really want to unlock Human potential. So here we are doing it and sharing with you this episode is uh, some of the breakthrough science that we've been learning about and trying to back. Well, let's explore the self experimenters too a little bit because that's another one of your greatest hits synthesis points. Talk to me about self-experimentation, you're pro or con, I mean, not in a reckless way, but I mean, I guess the establishment meters progress in a certain way, which in some ways is, I mean, it's extremely cautious. It's folks who are facing like certain death in a short time, and now they have to sit and wait. I mean, Mm -hmm. it seems to me, I I might turn to that sort of thing if I were faced with some some of these types of choices. And
1: There's a spectrum of testing things. And at one end of the spectrum is responsible self-experimentation, study of one and you get some data. And many people in the scientific community have done that. The history of science is replete with inventors who tested their drugs on themselves.
0: Sure, that's how it all Um, starts in every case, I mean, yeah.
1: And then you move out to, on the other end, you have the highly institutionalized clinical trials run by organizations such as the FDA, whose mandate is should probably be thought of as um, the Hippocratic Oath Agency, in that any cost and any loss of life is worth it to avoid deliberately causing loss of life. So the FDA will absolutely cause as much death as it possibly can to avoid anybody body introducing a drug that actually causes directly. Death directly. So we can agree or disagree with that. I happen to disagree with that. I think the FDA is well over on the wrong side of the pendulum. But back to the self-experimenters, responsible self-experimenters can produce ANIC data That is interesting enough for somebody else to say, well, we should spend $100,000 or $200,000 on running a small test with actual trial rules and see where we get, not to please the FDA, but to actually see if it works. And there's a scale up that goes on from small to large as people move through the process. And we need more of the small at this point in time. There are ways that could affect aging and are very likely to affect aging in a meaningful fashion that are cheap and easy to do that need people to go out there and run, you know, the not pleasing the FDA, but doing it rigorously, 100-person trial, for example. Does this method actually reduce chronic inflammation with age? Does it improve these particular, drug, these particular age-related conditions? And let's just go out there and get some philanthropists to fund this and show that rapamycin use or fecal microbiota transplant or senolytic drugs, dasatinib and quercetin, actually make things meaningfully better for older people. And you could do that for you know, half a million dollars each for 100 to 200 people, given you could do it in the US for some of these, you could do it in the Bahamas for others. And there are people out there who are heading in the direction of doing this. That sort of work only really emerges after there's a bunch of agitation by self-experimenters and researchers and others saying, you know, we should try this, we should try this, we should try this. And the self-experimenters who do it responsibly are sort of a part of that spectrum of convincing people to put in more funds because they're getting good n equals one data of course the flip side of that is you can look at the bodybuilder forums to see how you don't self-experiment those guys are crazy uh, they do all the wrong stuff they do terrible things they don't test their products they hope they don't measure and all of the things that make it not self-experiment and just a dangerous hobby so you know if you're if you're 80 you should talk to your doctor before you change your diet you're a frail person if you're 50 it's a whole different calculation but there's still ways in which you can hurt yourself being a self-experimenter. It's like hang gliding, you know, can be a lot of fun, can be useful, but don't do silly things.
0: I mean, it's so interesting to hear you characterize this quarter of the field that you're in. I guess 10 or 20 years ago, certainly 20 years ago, this was not even a a field you would give its own name to, right? Longevity or whatever. And maybe about 10 years ago, it still felt like it was a handful of hobbyists against Big pharma and biotech and the FTA. We're getting to a point now though, I think that it, it feels like the, you know, the 1970s with computers, that there are a bunch of venture-backed companies that are out there building things and there are sort of semi-hobbyist or sort of early adopter type folks that are that are out there working on real tangible applications. And certainly we're going to get to your company, repair biotechnologies, in a second. And there's a family of companies alongside you that are commercializing gene therapies or uh, small molecules or other types of treatments, perhaps. But you're really speaking with the voice of like the homebrew computer club when you talk about the N equals one kind of biohacker experimentation.
1: It's a part of the culture. It has to happen. You can't have an entrepreneurial culture without the self-experimental culture attached to it. You know, they come with each other. It's you can't separate the one from the other. So what are
0: you the most enthusiastic about? So it's clear synalytic drugs or treatments or molecules is high on your list. And, and my guess is we're going to talk about that when we turn to repair. Am I right?
1: Oh, actually, we don't work on that. That's a field that needs yeah. no, it needs no help whatsoever. There's there's so many people working in there that uh, we, the problem is going to be solved within the next 10 years. Same deal for epigenetic reprogramming. That's given the amount of money that's come into that field recently. All the rest of us can just sit back and watch. Uh-huh. Is, well, give us a few names that.
0: that you think are the leaders first in the senolytics targeting mm. senescent cells. Is that I think like the, or?
1: the interesting part about the senolytic space is that unlike many historical areas of drug development the early compounds that were tested are actually really 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 good in that none of the first generation drugs are likely to be actually better yeah. than than the early drugs that were tested and found through screening so dasatinib and quercetin is probably pretty good
0: quercetin is like a natural supplement you call it a drug it's like a
1: yeah it's, that it's that a natural supplement It's not senolytic on its own. This is a combination therapy. You have to use the two together. That works pretty well, according to the Mayo Clinic data. Dirt cheap. So all these guys coming along, producing senolytic drugs, they have to do meaningfully, meaningfully better, and many of them are not going to. I think for my money, the winner of the first round of senolytics companies is probably going to be somebody like Rubido, who is taking a pro-drug approach. It turns out that there's a very useful little bit of biochemistry that happens in senescent cells and not very much elsewhere which cuts off a piece of a protein that turns up so you can attach that piece of a protein to a highly toxic drug making that drug harmless and then just flood the body with the drug and inside senescent cells the piece that makes it harmless gets cut off senescent cell promptly dies and the drug that you'd want to use with that is called navitoclax which is actually a really, really good senolytic for many types of senescent cell, but it's too toxic to use systemically in humans because the side effects are kind of obnoxious. You lose all your platelets and that's not something you want to happen.
0: The, the trick here is you target.
1: Yeah. So you, you get to target it in this highly effective way. And it doesn't have to be Novitoclax, It could be anything but uh, that's toxic. But navitoclax is a great one because at that point, it's sufficiently you know, balanced between killing senescent cells and not absolutely toxic to everything else that you can give very large amounts of it with this you have this wonderful you know therapeutic window opening up for the pro-drug approach and pro-drugs will always be cheap compared to the gene therapies and the immunotherapies So there are a bunch of other approaches and no doubt the end result will be some are better for some parts of the body and some are better for other parts of the body. So in the end, maybe it will be a combination of three or four therapies, but it's hard to beat small molecule, dirt cheap to manufacture and highly effective.
0: Okay. So then what's number two on your list that you think is so far along, it doesn't need any help.
1: Clearly epigenetic reprogramming. The current story appears to be, and some of this still needs to be validated a little more aggressively, It appears to be that when you suffer DNA breaks in your DNA, just random DNA damage in a cell, the act of repairing that is depleting something that's needed to maintain the nuclear envelope and the chromatin of the folded DNA in there in a way that maintains normal gene expression. The more DNA damage you get, and it happens all the time, the more your cells are drifting towards being aged in terms of the way they express genes. And of course, gene expression pretty much absolutely determines cell function. If you can then go in and do this thing with the epigenetic reprogramming, where you deliver Yamanaka factors into cells for a short period of time, and that convinces the cells to fix their lives, reorder their chromatin, go back to having youthful gene expression, and then get back to acting as if they were in young tissue, and this works pretty well in mice. It seems to be producing good results. There's nowhere near as much data as for Sanalytics, because it hasn't been a thing for as long. But the data that does exist looks pretty good. Now, the story I've just told is new and needs some validation. But the whole world and their dog has jumped on this approach. And there's now, I think, $4 billion in the last year have been put into just this partial epigenetic reprogramming approach. and eight billion dollars went into the whole of biotech in 2021 or something like that so it's kind of crazy
0: this isn't super early folks i mean there are some very early stage folks working in this area but there are some some big established players then that are
1: um there's now a biggest yeah people are putting a lot of money into this starting with high net worth individuals and moving on to the usual suspects in the funds and the large sources of funding for biotech investment everybody just piled in on altos labs and there's a number of other companies that have raised you know more than 100 million in the last year to go play in the space of um, epidemic reprogramming now this can't fix everything it can't fix your dna damage it can't fix The fact that your cells are full of gunk that a young cell can't get rid of, such as your brain cells and parts of your body have lipofusion in them, which is resistant to being broken down. It probably can't fix your extracellular matrix having too many crosslinks, but it's entirely possible that this will produce tremendous benefits, well worth the funding and chasing it. I mean, we'll see. At this point, it seems a very compelling story and the early animal data makes it still seem like a very compelling story. Those are the two top items, neither of which I work on.
0: Why don't we now turn to repair and the the area that
1: you're in? So, synalytics and and partial reprogramming are kind of, they're where you go if you come at this from a, what are the mechanisms I should be addressing here? Let's look at the ones that seem credible and go attack them. My approach with repair is more along the lines of, what kills the most people? Let's go fix it. In the case of my first project here with the repair team, it's... uh, addressed cardiovascular disease, atherosclerosis specifically, you get the buildup of fatty gunk in your arteries, and this kills a quarter of humanity directly through heart attack and stroke when something ruptures. And it probably kills another 10% of humanity indirectly because of the narrowing of blood vessels, which leads to all sorts of horrible complications and degenerations in the heart and the brain and so forth. You really want a way to clear out your arteries. On a regular basis so that you never get these i mean this starts in your 40s for a lot of people they have many people in their 40s already have the fatty streaks that will kill them in time as they grow and the industry has focused for various reasons on reducing blood cholesterol over the years that was prompted by the fact that there are human mutants who have low blood cholesterol throughout their lives and thereby have a lower cardiovascular disease risk because you know they get less cholesterol in their Blood vessel in their blood vessel walls over time. But that isn't really a good approach to therapy when you're looking at treating somebody for a couple of years, or if you're treating somebody with advanced lesions who's going to die soon because something's going to rupture because it's not fast enough. It doesn't have a large enough effect. So, what you need is something that actually directly removes the plaques from the arteries, it breaks them down, it gets rid of the excess cholesterol in there. So what we do is we give cells the ability to safely break down excess cholesterol via a gene therapy. You can introduce genes into cells that, um, in a very rate-limited way, get rid of that cholesterol, which enables all of the cells that are being turned crazy and dysfunctional by the presence of that excess cholesterol to go back to doing their normal jobs and clearing it up. So on the one hand, it fixes the problem, and on the other hand, it helps cells fix the problem. And this is highly effective in mice. When we deliver this as a gene therapy using adeno associated virus, you get a halving of plaque in mice in about a month following a single treatment. And in humans, mortality due to cardiovascular disease, due to plaque, is linearly scales with the number of lesions you have. So, you know, if you have twice as much plaque, you're twice as likely to die in the next year. This is what we want to bring to people. What we work on at the moment is the very boring and fiddly work of taking something that you know works and making it into a therapy that the FDA will be happy with, which is never quite as straightforward as one would like in the gene therapy world or the cell therapy world. There are always limitations that you're working within. So we work on that at this present moment in time and hope to come to human trials within the next couple of years.
0: Well, I mean, so many things to ask. So I guess you've had the result, the efficacy result in mice, and you have any sense on how durable it is across you
1: know various types of mice? Are you working on a single mouse model and they're all the same? And yeah. The beauty of this is that we really don't care about the mouse models that much because the all uh, the variance in them. The atherosclerosis community, considered in the broader sense, cares a lot about the differences between the mouse models because capturing human cholesterol balance in blood and the way in which the lesions develop is actually rather complicated. And that mattered in the world in which all of your therapies are intended to affect blood cholesterol and only slow things down. In our world, we don't care how you got the lesions. It could be by magic for all we care. We target them directly, and therefore all the models are valid to us. I mean,
0: you target cells in the body, I suppose, that you are now gonna program to go attack
1: cholesterol. So the the cells in the artery walls, if you just give them the ability to digest cholesterol, I should say the human body can't break down cholesterol to a first approximation. The whole weird atherosclerosis business exists because our body chooses, has evolved not to um, make cholesterol and remove it locally. Your body only makes cholesterol in the liver to a first approximation. And then from the liver, it has to go everywhere. So it uses the bloodstream. So you end up with this situation where excess cholesterol always ends up in the blood vessel walls. So you evolved a mechanism involving innate immune cells called macrophages that ingest that excess cholesterol and then hand it back into the blood system to go back to the liver for excretion. So it's sort of like energy. It never gets created or destroyed. It's just handed around a lot. And when that system goes awry, then you get atherosclerosis. And it goes awry because the macrophage cells stop doing their jobs just enough that there's a tipping point reached and once you reach the tipping point at which fat accumulates in an area at that point the fact that there's this local excess of fat really aggressively dysregulates the cells in that area and it causes them to become inflammatory it causes them to call for help so new cells keep coming in and adding to the mass and then the smooth muscle becomes involved and becomes changed, and some of those cells become pathological as well, and the thing just grows into a horrible blob that eventually kills you. So you need sort of something quite radical in the later stages of that. In fact, you need something quite radical at any point past the tipping point here, because the body normally can't get rid of this cholesterol at all, except by the cells that try to pick it up and get rid of it. And those cells become overwhelmed as soon as you have a fatty streak. is is too much for them. They can't deal with it anymore. That's the power of what we do is um, bypassing that problem. It's
0: incredibly exciting i mean and you haven't chosen the easiest tool you haven't chosen a small molecule to toss in there i mean as you talked about your process right you didn't start from a mechanism of action you started from a what's the biggest problem and i guess you think this is the most efficacious strategy on this biggest
1: problem the problem here is that you really can't use a small molecule there are certainly small molecules beta cyclodextrins that bind to cholesterol but you can't indiscriminately put those in the body to the degree that you would need in order to get rid of the plaque was they will just go suck up cholesterol from everywhere and it'll turn your blood to mush. The formerly underdog pharmaceuticals does the beta-cyclodextrin approach. Their idea is to tailor their beta-cyclodextrin to be specific to a certain oxidized form of cholesterol that's kind of more obnoxious than the normal cholesterol and may be causing a meaningful fraction of the pathology in and of itself, even though there's not very much of it. So they can put in a small amount of beta-cyclodextrin and hopefully that doesn't bind too much normal cholesterol and hopefully they get a big hit out of getting rid of this very pathological seven keto cholesterol variant. That's and if we're lucky, it will turn out that seven keto cholesterol is causing a major amount of the cell dysfunction to the point where they get real effect on where the tipping point is in lesions. If they fail on this, which they may, they still have a soft landing because seven keto cholesterol is definitely a problem and definitely toxic in some other conditions. But it's a good test, and that's about the only thing I can think of you could do with a small molecule in the context of cholesterol, because cholesterol is literally everywhere in the body. Every cell membrane is made out of it. You can't go mess with it with a small molecule. Yes.
0: Well, my question to zoom out was the mission of the business that you're building.
1: Ah, yes. Yeah. So, first, so we started at the top.
0: I mean, it'd be no small feat if you managed to target cholesterol and uh, atherosclerosis. but does it mean that next, you want to go
1: to the number two killer on the planet? Or totally, stra- uh, yeah. absolutely. Next up, cancer. I think the obvious thing to do with cancer would be to start a business that is doing small molecule screening for ways to inhibit alternative lengthening of telomeres. Alternative lengthening of telomeres is vital to 10% of cancers, but it doesn't operate outside cancer cells. That's the only place it runs. So cancer cells need to make their telomeres longer in order to keep replicating because telomere length is lost with each cell division. And that's part of the limit on normal cells as to how often they can replicate. Cancer cells always have found a way to abuse the biochemistry of lengthening telomeres to allow them to just replicate uncontrollably. One of those ways is called alternative lengthening of telomeres, which is only a minority of cancers, but it's a great starting point for a company that will then go on to find a way to shut down telomerase, which is the primary way by which all telomeres are lengthened in the body and which 90% of cancers abuse to lengthen their telomeres. So if you can find a way to shut down lengthening of telomeres in the body and you keep it going for long enough that the cancer dies, but not for so long enough that the patient's stem cells run out of steam, you have a single treatment that will destroy all cancer. And that is the cost-effective way to go after the number two killer, which is all forms of cancer combined. That's the way to do it, I think. And then after that, if I still have time left after that, then you know, there's probably a number three and a four if nobody's <laughs> got through it yet. <laughs> it is just breathtaking
0: ambition. I think that was a word you used uh, a few minutes back when we were talking about immortality. It's a word that's only used by folks that have suitable levels of ambition. This conversation has been really eye-opening and inspiring, and you are just happily playing in some precincts that I think a number of mainstream researchers wouldn't go close to. But you're making a very compelling case for it.
1: I hope so. I hope so. In theory, the researchers who are very leery about aging are all retiring these days, and the new generation is much more willing to consider this a a path that is important. And I think the existence of a lot of researchers who have made an enormous amount of money coming into the longevity industry should hopefully provide further incentive for the, uh, the new young Turks in the industry to come and, and the academia to actually come and make something out of their research.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's Thomas Kuhn, right? The origin of scientific revolutions. I think you could boil down the whole book to uh, the
1: old guard retires. Indeed. That's ironic in a way, but that's how we're making progress here.
0: Thank you so much for spending time with me and talking to me about your fantastically interesting work and research and interests. And um, I mean, I just couldn't get enough. I think we'll have to have you back again. Really a pleasure.
1: Thank you.